0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio talked to an author about the culture of protest, chatted with a political activist about the future of Chicago, and delved into the Me Too movement in the tech world. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 6, 2018. I-94 spoke to author Eugene Lim about his latest book, Dear Cyborgs. Lim discussed protest culture, his inspirations, and how being a high school librarian has shaped his writing. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
1: And today we are going to be discussing uh, a couple books with the author of Dear Cyborg. His name is Eugene Lim. He is joining us by phone from New York City. Eugene, are you with us? I am. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eugene. Why don't we hear, uh, actually, we've got some selections from Dear Cyborg uh, with it's z-
2: cyborgs
1: Cyborgs <laughs> uh, With uh, new music actually by uh, John McCowan from Tweakbird Thanks to Scotty McNeese So uh, strap in for this one uh, We'll be right back in about three minutes after we listen to this
0: While the room was filling with dark purple shadows For one reason or another I began recalling a long and cold day and night I'd lived through about 15 years prior it had to do with the kidnapped children of a Japanese diplomat. There were some sensitive trade negotiations going on with Japan at the time, some kind of power brokering about which I was never entirely informed. And because of this and because of the revealed methodology of the kidnapper, I was tapped for the job. The terrorist group that had claimed responsibility for the kidnapping was led by someone who called herself Miss Mistletoe. Little was known about her other than her name. The Japanese diplomat's children had gotten on a plane in Tokyo that was destined for Paris. They were on their way to spend two weeks at a tennis camp in Monaco. The flight had had one transfer in Doha, Qatar. The children were traveling with their tutor, kun bodyguard, a very capable man I interviewed, named Umber. Umber was found drugged and unconscious in a bathroom stall in a railway station in Amps, Siberia. He recalls getting on the plane in Tokyo and nothing else until he awoke in a hospital 36 hours later. Two days after the kidnapping, a letter oddly addressed to Ira, my friend, the police commissioner, was sent to the Japanese embassy in Berlin. Ira, to his knowledge, had never had anything to do with the Japanese economy or international politics, so it was assumed the gesture and the contents of the letter were for my benefit. I'd been on my vigilante crime-fighting crusade for several years by then, and despite a desire and a need for anonymity, my reputation had become well-known. In fact, I had attracted some very unwanted attention. In these circles of which I'm speaking, I was known by the alias Frank Exit. The ransom letter had several demands. The adoption worldwide of a single-payer universal health care system, mandatory carbon caps, nuclear disarmament, paid year-long parental leave, and a tax on all securities transactions. Miss Mistletoe, the signer of the ransom note, thoughtfully added that since such demands would not be easily met, She would accept in the meantime, as a down payment and a token of good faith, so-called, the artist Robert Rauschenberg's Canyon. A sculptural combine deemed priceless by some assessors, but tagged at $65 million by the International Revenue Service, delivered to a given set of GPS coordinates in a week's time. The sculpture needed to be delivered by someone unarmed and alone, which is how I got involved. I was to be the courier.
1: And that was a selection from "Dear Cyborgs" by Eugene Lim, with music by John McCowan from Tweakbird. That's a new album, actually, of solo contrabass. If you're wondering what a contrabass is, it's a giant clarinet that he is playing through uh, a bunch of processed electronics, and he's providing all the music uh, for today's show. So, thank you to International Anthem. But that was a selection. Uh, and, you know, Eugene, that was a more straight-ahead passage in a weird way. That that almost could have come out of a, a spy movie or a comic book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why. You use this framing device because where the book goes next is to a real discussion of dissent and uh, protest, in a way, and it, it kind of flips on its head because the the character that is coming up next is going to talk about why she is holding this for hostage and uh, what's going on next.
3: Yeah, I think the book um, includes not in a uh, includes these different genre ideas, like the superhero idea, and in, in here, the suspense idea. Um, there's detective and noir ideas as well. And I think that um, not to uh, dishonor those genres, which I like, um, but to take some of the momentum and propulsion of them uh, so that the reader can stay with, stay involved, um, and freight different uh Different ideas, different narratives uh, into them, so that um, the the reader can, um, you know, th- so that there is an unexpected uh, and uh, different outcome. Um, kind of a justification that I thought of after I'd written it uh, was the way that we go through our day and we pick up and put down all these different kinds of narrative stories, uh, narratives. Uh, we wake up and we listen to something on the radio. Maybe it's a story core monologue or you know some, something like that. And then we take our train in to work and we we read our mystery novel or we read our graphic novel and we go to work. We come home and we maybe watch a science fiction movie with our kid or, or uh, you know, and go to bed and read our mystery or detective book or, or a poetry book or whatever. And we pick up and we put down these stories seamlessly. And we don't think about them at all. And the book itself, I think does something similar, it allows um, uh, in the, we can kind of without, it it might feel more abrupt in in a book, but in our day, we go, we make these transitions not even we start a story and we finish a story, but we pick up stories right in the middle and we put them down right in the middle uh, and so the book does little of that, it starts all these different kinds of uh, narrative machines going um, and, uh, and also it freights them with this with this other topic, these kind of philosophical discussions about protest culture, so uh, so I don't know if that explains it, but that's one way all these different narratives are working.
2: I think that was a great explanation, and it, it it's interesting that you said that. I my wife said, you know, this morning, you know, what's the book about? And I said, well, it's about a lot of things, but I, you know, I said it's you know it's a very you mentioned the stranger earlier and I, I said that this morning it's an existential novel kind of about the nature and I was thinking about the political climate we're in today and, and some of the discussions that happen in the book um you know is is protest actually effective as protest or is it a form of spiritual experience there's a there's a debate about that um, and you know you one of the things that I I, I saw and I see reading, you know with today's political climate is the fact that some people do have these discussions you know is protest effective is is going down and blocking traffic and and playing drums going to change anything and and i i thought that was an interesting um uh, and i don't think there's a solution in the book but i i think the idea of you know is it something we do for the nature of protest is it is it a selfish thing is it an art is it uh, spiritual um you know i think these are all things that um these are interesting questions, especially today. And I, I know the book, I, I believe I read an interview, and you said that you actually started this under the Obama administration, correct?
3: That's right. I wrote it in the, most of it, I think, in the uh, in the second half of his last term.
2: And I, I feel like it very much applies to this, this term as well, um, it, even more so because we went from this uh, somewhat articulate well very articulate handsome you know diplomatic president to this like obscenity that you know I, I don't have any other way to describe it and i don't need to get into descriptions of the cheeto but um you know i i think it really applies to what the in you know and i'm not saying the world was perfect under obama and you know we live under you know neoliberal conditions across the board we're heavy on defense we're, we don't take care of people inequality grows by the minute However, I do think that, you know, there was probably not as much um, of a protest situation under Obama. Of course, we had the um, Occupy movement, which you talk about in the book. But what I'm getting at here is, you know, these are things it, – it's a it's a short novel, but it's also very complex. And, and we're talking about some very um, heady subjects. And I like the fact that, you know, there's no, like, simple tie-in and it's just um, – just a narrative, you know, the, the multiple narratives about why we do things, but there's no like this is the way it's supposed to be, this is the answer. And I, I think it's a very philosophical novel. And I was wondering, and to make a very long statement short, is do you agree that, that, that this is an existential novel? And um, what are your thoughts about the current protests in America?
3: I don't know about uh, what, uh, whether. Satisfies the promise to be an existential novel, but in terms of protest, I think I did not set out to write uh, uh, a political novel or a novel about protests. And if I uh, and part of me tried to talk myself out of it because I think there are a lot of inherent dangers about trying to do that. Um, there's this. I, I think there's arguments against it, but there's this innate sense of hypocrisy about it, or 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 foolishness about it, in the sense that if you have time and energy to do something, um, writing a, uh, to protest, writing a novel, might not be the most effective use of your time um, and resources. But putting that aside, there's also this confidence. I wasn't necessarily confident that um, I was well-versed enough or uh, I had um, uh, any solutions or answers. But what I did have and was, was this feeling of, of despair uh, and feeling of helplessness that, um, as you call, as you kind of described it, this neoliberal time under the Obama administration, there was um, this feeling of of despair, because there was this rise in inequity. Uh, there's this durable racism in our country. There's the environmental disasters. You know, you could check off the list. Simultaneously, there's this. The utopian sales pitch that technology is giving us, where we have the Library of Congress and the Criterion Collection in our pocket, and, um, and uh, we can talk to people around the world uh, uh, instantly face to face. And yet, all these technological miracles are, uh, despite them, we feel often alienated and depressed. And all those things, I think, all those elements are very intertwined. And I think you're right that there was a, a Shift in tone; um, that there was this despair, um, but there wasn't a rage. And I think the the, the switch over now is um, the book. I think has moments of rage, but there was this um, uh, now. There's this feeling of anger constantly about what's going on. So, uh, in terms of the book's dealing with protest culture, I guess um,
2: the. I meant the nature yeah. of protest not necessarily um you know protest culture I don't I don't feel that it's it's a protest novel I was just talking what I was referring to is the the ideas and why we protest is which is futile or is it not yeah is it, it, it is there a point to it and I, I think that's what the discussion was um
3: Yeah I think the book doesn't answer the question but it asks the question over and over and over yeah. again is what I'm doing Is what I'm doing worthwhile? Is it is is it gonna change anything? And if not, why am I doing it? It asks that question in a lot of different ways.
0: Text Chicago spoke to Lauren Ramsey from the Betsy Bash Agency about equal pay, sponsored content, and why social media attracts so many women. The award-winning TechScene Scene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m.
4: Hello, everybody. Uh, We're back from break. This is Melanie Adcock with Chicago, and we are broadcasting live on 105.5 FM WLPN LP Chicago Lumpen Radio. We're here in our recording studio in Chicago's Bridgeport neighborhood, and our our next guest today is Lauren Ramsey, and she's here to talk with us about Betsy Bash and their social media events. Uh, Lauren, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you, Melanie. Glad to be here.
4: We are very glad that you are here today, and and let's take it from the top and and hear about what you do with Betsy Bash.
5: Yeah, so I'd really like to tell you the name, uh, what the story behind the name Betsy Bash. Mm-hmm. So I have you know two grandmothers, just like most people do, or hopefully everyone. Um, and my my mom's mom is very etiquette driven. She's very formal. She's very prim and proper. Right. Mm-hmm. My dad's mom was really more of a wildfire, like kind of you know. She would tell jokes, and she would talk her way out of speeding tickets, and so she was a little bit more of a firecracker. And those two women really taught me that you have to know the etiquette for every situation that you walk into, but mm-hmm. once you're there, you have to have a little fun with life, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really the motto that we teach all of our social media coaching clients, that we put behind all the content strategies that we build for our clients, um, and you know, it's just it's a really fun way to approach social. That's what we do.
4: That's that's a wow, that's a great um, philosophy there. Um, Now, Lauren, where are you from? And and how did you decide to put roots down in Chicago?
5: So I have actually lived in five different countries. Hmm. I was born overseas and I lived in Southeast Asia until I was five years old. Wow. So I lived in Indonesia and Singapore, and I went to kindergarten and first grade in India. Wow. Then from there we moved to Venezuela. That's mm-hmm. where I went to second grade, and then we moved to the states. and that was my first time to ever come to the United States when I was
4: six years old. Wow. And, and so so how did you choose Chicago? <laughs> so
5: um, when we moved to the states uh, when I was six and we lived in Houston, and I lived in Houston all throughout college, all after college. And I started visiting Chicago after college, and I fell in love with the city. I oh. just every time I was here, I, was, I felt at home. You know, mm-hmm. And every time I had to you know, leave Chicago to go to Houston, I was really sad. And so it had been a life goal of mine to move to Chicago for probably the past 10 years. And so I moved here about two years ago.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a good story. I love hearing how people decide uh, when they're going to build a life here. That's, uh, that's uh, really great. It sounds like you had a lot of pl- cool places to choose from and then you <laughs> came here. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, now, Lauren, do you feel that social media is, is techie? I wanted to ask you about this. <laughs> yeah.
5: So I think at the surface, it doesn't feel techie, right? It feels yeah. like it's video and photos and fun and, um, you know, talking about what you do and what you like, but really at the core, it is it is mm-hmm. techie. Um, if you just think about for just a moment, how many programmers Facebook uh, has at their disposal, right, it's, it's tech. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of the interesting things about my background in particular is I went to the University of St. Thomas and did a double major in management information systems and business. Mm-hmm. And that itself doesn't naturally lead you to a life in social media. But at its core, it does, right? Because all of these different platforms are are technology-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so they each have their own features that are very different than the, the other, which drives forward to that etiquette difference, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you use hashtags on Instagram and not on Facebook? A lot of that is Uh, etiquette, and that's Mm -hmm. also driven by the technology behind it.
4: Mm -hmm. And uh, what are your thoughts on on women in tech and the struggles we've seen with issues like equal pay? I I ask this because a lot of your events are geared toward women and things like that. Absolutely.
5: You know, so what's interesting about that is I think we can draw a parallel because the arc of social media really takes you from awareness, Mm -hmm. right? Who are we as a brand? What do we do? What who do we serve? Um, Through to engagement, you know. Mm -hmm. So once people start to realize who you are, they can start to engage with you, and then from there they can take some sort of action, right? But that's the arc of social, and I think that that's where we're also seeing the arc of this equal pay issue. Mm -hmm. We're in that awareness. We've we've conquered awareness, right? People know that there is an unequal, uh, you know, pay system out there, and now we're in engagement, and we're really into into that action piece. So. yeah, I think I think it's interesting to see where it's going. I think we're already starting to see strides in uh, you know that, that gap coming closer and I hope that it's equal. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. Well that's that's great Well and I, I love that you explain that arc because I think it, it gives a lot of hope to um, to some of these issues that people hear about and are even struggling with as they pursue their own careers. That's great and no tell us about the the mission of the the Betsy Bash uh, event.
5: Yeah so we call our events social media soirees, right? Mm-hmm because we really want you to start treating social media like a party mm-hmm. instead of a chore. Because a lot of times people look at social and like, oh, gosh, I have to post. How many times do I have to post? What am I supposed to say? Like, didn't I just say that yesterday? And it becomes this chore type of activity. Mm-hmm. And really what we want to show you is that it's really fun. It can be really fun if you put a plan and a strategy behind it. And so, uh, you know, that's the mission to really change people's mindset that it's a party.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, fun. I'm all for fun. That sounds uh, so <laughs> terrific. Uh, what what topics do you cover?
5: Sure. So a lot of times we talk about social media strategy and content calendar building, right? Because that's the core mm-hmm. of anything you're going to do on social. It has to start there. Um, but then we also talk about the the topics that surround that, right? So what is how does the Facebook algorithm work? Mm-hmm. What do you do to conquer the Facebook algorithm? What are the pieces that you're getting judged on for the Facebook algorithm? Yeah. Um, you know, how do you use Instagram to the best of your ability? What platforms are out there that you can uh, leverage for social media scheduling and how do you use them? Um, you know, so topics like that, anything that surround social, the, essentially the questions that people have as they're working through their own social media strategy.
4: Mm. And then, um, I mean, do you, do you feel that you help more people get into a more techie type of uh, career path through all of your events? You know, it, it's, it's starting to happen for sure. So I just taught a class for General Assembly.
5: We had a social media boot camp. Mm. So it was all day Saturday. Oh. And I was so excited that people showed up because, you know, probably not the most thing they want to do the most on a Saturday. Um, but everyone was there that was there was really eager to learn about social and how they can incorporate it into their businesses. And then at the end, I had two women approach me that said they were trying to make a career shift. And they were really interested in, in how I could help and what advice I had for them. And I was just so honored and humbled that they came to me for that.
4: Oh, well, that's, that's great. And I what, uh, Just a couple questions, you know, about social media. I mean, I know a lot of small businesses struggle with this, um, you know. But, but what what is the best way that they can set up an effective social media strategy?
5: Yes, this is definitely one of the, the biggest questions uh, that I receive and that I know are on so- small business owners' minds. And so I'm going to give some tips. Okay. <laughs> so these are a few things that we teach in our social media soirees. So, you, so uh, you're, you're getting it live from looking radio today. All right. <laughs> so really you need to look at- your content, you know, in three different categories, it mm-hmm. needs to be either entertaining, infor- entertaining, mm-hmm. informing, informing. Or informative, mm-hmm. or you're selling something, right? So selling. what you're in business mm-hmm. to do. And if you can cycle through those three categories regularly enough, um, no one is ever going to feel, feel overly sold to,
6: mm-hmm. or that
5: you're kind of just showing up on social to just have fun, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you're walking that line of being helpful as a business owner, um, showing that you have a fun side, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to that my two grandmothers right mm-hmm. um and then also you're you're in business so you should be you know,
4: talking about what you, what you sell as a business. Mm-hmm. That, is, that, is, uh, that is great. Th- those are some great ideas. And then, well, what are the benefits of having a social media calendar? I mean, I can probably guess what a lot of the benefits are of being <laughs> sure. organized and things like that, but I'd like to hear what you have to say.
5: Yes. yeah, Organized is definitely one of the biggest benefits, but I think even more than that is just the ease of mind that you have knowing that your social media is covered. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you can take take on whatever happens that day. Right. How many times do you start off your day with a plan and it goes awry because other things pop up.
4: Mm-hmm. Right.
5: Um, so that way, you know, that no matter what happens that day, your social media is covered and that
4: your plan is in place. hmm. Well, and then what about hashtags and keywords? I mean, it's, it's probably hard for someone who's new at this just to figure out what the heck to say. Right. And right. So, so how do they play a role in, in figuring that out and increasing reach and things like that? Right, so on Instagram, a
5: lot of people don't know this, but you can have up to 30 hashtags.
4: Really? Mm -hmm.
5: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you think of all of those hashtags as individual roads that can lead Mm -hmm. someone to your content, why would you not want to open up all those roads? Mm-hmm. right so get get to as many uh, get to as as many of those thirty hashtags as you can each time you post um, and then be sure to vary that up um, because one of the the rules that it, that Instagram has now put in place along with their algorithm inside of their algorithm is that if you use the same thirty over and over again, you're
4: getting penalized. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well, I didn't know that thirty hashtags I just wrote that one down. yeah um no, what? What are your thoughts on content distribution and, and things like sponsored ad campaigns? That helps get the word out, too. And and, uh, and yeah, tell
5: us some more about that. Yeah. So if we go back to that, you know, social media arc,
4: right? Mm-hmm.
5: If you're just starting out on social, you're going to have to fight for that awareness. Right. You're going to have to fight for it. And one of the best ways that you can leverage your brand to get further in that awareness cycle is to, place ads, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So it's not always the answer people want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to spend extra money on their marketing campaigns, but it is going
4: to take you there quicker and that will feel so great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very very well stated. And, uh, you know, I, I read an article recently about some of the shadier processes of journalism and journalists taking bribes from companies in exchange for mentions of their company or brand in in some of the more known media outlets that this is something that that happens um wh- why don't people just buy ads
5: <laughs> I know isn't it kind of sad when you see this the, the veil gets uh, you know lifted and you're like what mm-hmm. why are people doing that you know? right um so yeah why don't they just buy ads right um, it's I, th- I think the only reason that I could think of, um, you know, to their I guess to their point would be the appearance of organic content, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but ob- obviously we know it's not, right? And so we our hope would be that they would go the the correct channels, mm-hmm. you know, the etiquette driven channels, right? Um, but that's just not the case.
6: The radio.
1: The Trump Diaries. Trump gives an impromptu interview to the Times chock full of scary stuff. Trump tells his pals, you all just got a lot richer. Trump then fires his AIDS advisors. Jared Kushner's landlord gets a big Christmas gift. And Happy New Year, haters. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 343, December 28th. The Washington Post reported that Trump's legal strategy for dealing with the Michael Flynn indictment and guilty plea is to call the former senior advisor a liar. Analysts believe Flynn has given significant information to Mueller's team. And Yahoo reported that Mueller is investigating whether the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee coordinated voter outreach using stolen information obtained by Russian hackers. It is known that Russian hackers stole voter information from election databases in several states in 2016. Mueller's prosecutors want to know if the Trump campaign was given that information and if they used it to target voters in key swing states. Trump's margin of victory in three key swing states was under 45,000 votes. Jared Kushner was in charge of the campaign's digital operation. In a related story, Kushner has recently hired a crisis public relations firm. A federal judge ruled that Trump's voter fraud commission must give Democrats access to the panel's records. The group held its last meeting in September. It is expected to issue a report this year. Defeated Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore attempted to stop the certification of the vote, by filing suit. The suit, which contained an affidavit from a man who claims he can quote mathematically prove the circumstances surrounding the JFK assassination, reported that the election results were flawed because so many African Americans voted judge rejected the suit five minutes before the state certified the vote. And a New York Times report on Trump's immigration strategy contained some explosive details. According to the Times, during a June meeting, Trump said Haitians, quote, all have AIDS and complained that Nigerians, quote, would never go back to their huts if allowed into the country. Spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders denied those claims, calling the report outrageous. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin received a gift wrap box full of horse manure that prompted the evacuation of his home. A Christmas card inside the package read, quote, we're returning the gift of the Christmas tax bill, it's bold." adding PS, kiss Donald for me. After tweeting it's back to work in order to make America great again, Trump is filmed at his golf course playing golf for two days straight. On the second day, a box truck was parked between cameras and the president in order to block news cameras views of Trump. In a related story, Trump told visitors to Mar-a-Lago in the days after the tax bill signing, you all just got a lot richer. Day 344, December 29th. Trump unexpectedly gave Times reporter Michael Schmidt a one-on-one interview at Mar-a-Lago. In the interview, Trump made, by some counts, 25 false statements and several chilling ones. Trump claimed 16 times there was, quote, no collusion between his campaign and Russia. He alleged that the Democrats and Hillary Clinton colluded with Russia to deny him the popular vote and said, quote, I have an absolute right to do what I want with the Justice Department. Trump claimed also the investigation, quote, makes the USA look very bad, by which he means himself. The Interior Department rescinded a 2015 Obama administration rule that would have set new environmental limitations on hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, on public lands. The regulations would have required the disclosure of the chemicals used in fracking projects and required frackers to protect water supplies. In a related story, Trump also rolled back rules put in place after the BP Deepwater Horizon spill and the landlord of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner received a major gift this Christmas. The Interior Department renewed expired leases for a copper and nickel mining operation on the border of the Boundary Waters Park in Minnesota, overturning an Obama-era decision. This directly benefits the Chilean mining firm owned by billionaire Androko Lushik, who rents a six-bedroom mansion to the first daughter and her husband and Trump reneged on a federal deal to finance half the cost of a multi-billion dollar Amtrak tunnel connecting New Jersey to Penn Station, the busiest transit hub in the U.S. The Northeast Corridor has been plagued by delays due to the lone aging tunnel. The deal had been cut during the Obama administration. Day 345, December 30th. The remaining members of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS were fired en masse. A half dozen members had resigned in protest of the Trump administration's position on health policies months earlier, the White House fired the rest by form letter delivered by FedEx. And ProPublica reports the Justice Department is pushing for a question on citizenship to be added to the 2020 census. The move, a transparent attempt to use the nonpartisan census to further repressive goals on immigration, could have ripple effects. The census, in part, determines how congressional seats are distributed and where hundreds of billions of federal dollars are spent day 346, December 31st, all cabinet departments except Homeland Security, Veterans Affairs, and Interior had fewer permanent staff members at the end of the year than when Trump took office in January. A study conducted by the Washington Post showed that a hard hiring freeze combined with purges and the retirement of hundreds of employees have left some departments effectively crippled. And Trump appeared to pour cold water on a Dream Act meeting scheduled for this coming week. Trump tweeted, quote, the Democrats have been told and fully understand there can be no DACA without the desperately needed WALL, in all caps, at the southern border and an END, in all caps, to the horrible chain migration and ridiculous lottery system of immigration, etc. We must protect our country at all cost. And Trump wished friends, supporters, enemies, haters, and even the very dishonest fake news media a happy and healthy new year via Twitter. Trump's expensive Mar-a-Lago New Year's Eve ball had tickets that started at $750. Day 347, January 1st, 2018. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un made new threats in his New Year's Day address, alleging a nuclear launch button is, quote, always on my table and saying the entire United States was now within range of North Korean nuclear weapons, adding, quote, this is a reality, not a threat. He also said he was open to dialogue on South Korea and may also send a team to the Winter Olympics in Seoul. Trump did not respond to Kim's threat, saying only, quote, we'll see. Trump, however, accused Pakistan of lying and said that Pakistan gives, quote, safe havens to terrorists we hunt in Afghanistan with little help, no more, in a Twitter post. That tweet led Pakistan to summon the U.S. ambassador for an explanation. Day 348, January 2nd. Anti-government protests continue to rock the nation of Iran for a sixth straight day with at least 25 people killed and 450 now arrested in Tehran alone. The government used tear gas and water cannons against the protesters who are angry about high prices, corruption, and the regime of President Hassan Rouhani. Trump tweeted that, quote, the Iranian people are ready for a change and blamed Obama for foolishly giving Iran money. Iran is blaming the protests on outside, quote, enemies. Trump today said that Huma Abedin, a former top aide to Hillary Clinton, should face jail time. Yahoo reported that some emails found on her estranged husband Anthony Weiner's laptop contained classified material. Ironically, Abedin's Yahoo account was also hacked. Trump also urged the Justice Department to prosecute former FBI Director James Comey, referring, quote, to the Deep State Justice Department. It is unclear what Trump believes Comey should be prosecuted for. He has previously accused Comey of, quote, leaking information. Day 349, January 3rd. Trump again raised the prospect of nuclear war with North Korea today, taunting Kim Jong un on Twitter that he commands a much bigger and more powerful arsenal of weapons. Trump wrote, I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. Trump's message was greeted with scorn and disbelief from lawmakers, diplomats, and national security experts who called it juvenile and frightening. Trump's tweet also reminded many of his boast during the 2016 presidential campaign that his hands, and by that he meant his his genitals were in fact big enough. And the New York Times reported that a drunken George Papadopoulos bragged about the dirt Russia had on Hillary Clinton to an Australian diplomat at a London bar in May 2016. Alarmed Australian officials passed that information on to the FBI when the hacked Democratic emails began appearing online. The conversation appears to have directly sparked the FBI inquiry into Russian interference. And Orrin Hatch, the longest-serving Senate Republican, announced he will retire at the end of the year, paving the way for Mitt Romney, a consistent critic of Trump's, to run for that seat. Hatch said it was "quote time to hang up the gloves." Also. Al Franken officially resigned from the US Senate yesterday. Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith will be sworn in today. Franken resigned after accusations of sexual harassment. He has apologized, but also denies many of those claims. As Congress returns, Alabama Senator Doug Jones will also be sworn in, cutting the GOP majority to a single seat. And the Jewish attorney, who Roy Moore's wife held up at a rally in a failed attempt to deny claims of anti-Semitism, actually raised money and voted for Moore's opponent. Richard Jaffe was hired by the Moores to defend their son, Caleb Moore, against drug charges in 2016, Jaffe was a personal friend of Jones for nearly three decades. And according to a report in the Daily Beast, Anthony Scaramucci has told friends that Trump misses him and wants him back in the White House. Scaramucci, famously flamed out after 11 days on that job, has denied the report. Trump in an early morning tweet storm also said, quote, I will be announcing the most dishonest and corrupt media awards of the year on Monday at 5 o'clock. Subjects will cover dishonesty and bad reporting in various categories from the fake news media. Stay tuned. Speaking of, The Washington Post says Trump has made one, 1,950 false or misleading claims in 347 days. That's an average of 5.6 claims a day. And the 538 Metapole has Trump's approval rating at just 38%. That is the lowest for a president in his first term in history. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Hitting left spoke to Democratic Socialist Party member Kenzo Shibata about the struggles of forming a new political party, the election cycle coming up, and what Chicago really needs from its leaders. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m.
7: This is WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio. Uh, for those of you who are not listening on the podcast, that was Taj Mahal. If you're on the podcast, we're not—we don't get to play the music, so— um that would have been Taj Mahal if you were listening to the radio broadcast. And we're back. Uh, we're back uh, with uh, Emma Tai from the United Workers Family. <laughs> Let me try that again. United. Uh, what are we? Uh, United. Uh, uh,
8: a lot of people mix you up I with keep the, calling you that working I keep calling these party
7: the working <laughs> families yeah. party oh, is there any connection
9: yeah 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 we're um, we're we have a see, very like amiable relationship with them see Go to their I'm national not, meetings not and everything. entirely
8: wrong but 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 <laughs> are you a are you aiming to become a party a, a
9: yeah yeah well, I, we definitely talk about ourselves as a party building effort and I think that party it, building mm-hmm. and
7: you would run people uh inside and outside the democratic party is that the yeah. i mean is that the long term vision of
9: yeah i mean i think that you know this is a this is a long term project and i think there's a little bit of walking on both legs that's required here yeah. in terms of the inside outside strategy right democrats are better than republicans in terms of frankly like the survival Of working people, Um, and also the nevercrafts are often very bad, right? And so, if we really need, if we really want, and think we deserve our own political organization, our own political expression, um, then we need to be. But but it seems like there's
8: two. There's two contending strategies out there in the left. Uh, One is to uh, 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 create a third party, Mm -hmm. and the other is to. uh, or if not to to create a third party to have a third party that works within and outside the democratic party. Mhm. Uh you got to is that what's your what's your strategy?
9: I mean obviously I think that you know obviously we're endorsing in the democratic primaries in March, right? We've endorsed Brandon Johnson and Delia Ramirez. We think that there is a lot Well there are no
8: Republicans <laughs> here, right? Uh Except for the Democratic Party,
9: yeah, <laughs> Richard Boykin, obviously, uh, comes yeah. to mind. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> Cook County yeah. Commissioner District One. Um, so, I mean, I think that um, we have to endorse in the Democratic primaries, and I think we have to seriously explore places where we can run on our own, our own line. You know, and again, both and. Okay. I know that's sometimes unsatisfying for the more doctrinaire folks who are like, yeah, we need a party <laughs> or we need to change the There are
7: the no doctrinaires <laughs> here. Uh, um, we were but very just, flexible in our uh, <laughs> in our tactics. I
9: mean, I just think <laughs> the reality is that, like, you know, politics is really hard. And, you know, you win when you win. And, like, when you win, then you know that that's how you win.
8: Well, we saw that with the Sanders campaign. I mean, here was Sanders, an uh, open an uh, avowed socialist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he ran in the Democratic Party, but that caused some divisions in in the ranks, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there was a group that split off from that and supported uh, uh, what's her name. <laughs> 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 How soon we forget? Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, but the Green Party, the Green Party, that was yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. Uh, and now we've seen it. Uh, we've seen something like that around the Alabama election, mm-hmm. uh, where. Uh, uh the only thing i saw that came out of a, dem- a dsa which i guess is the largest now the largest socialist uh, openly socialist group 30 mm-hmm. something thousand members and i i combed the uh, twitter from all their their local groups and couldn't find one tweet mm. uh commenting on or or saying anything in support of uh jones or uh about more or anything like that it was like that's that's outside the bounds of uh, of what we're about, that mm-hmm. kind of election. Or this one, this one article uh, on Medium, I think it was, yeah. uh, signed uh, by a DSA member in in northern Alabama. In northern Alabama, who launched a big attack on Jones and said uh, they were sitting, they were staying home on election day. So
9: I mean, well, I guess what I would say when I think about all this stuff, I actually think that like that kind of division and debate is healthy, right? Like people don't want kingmakers and they don't want like I don't want to live in a place where like it's like this is the party line and like this is what we do right I think that frankly one of the really exciting things about politics is that in a country where people don't feel entitled to very much folks mostly don't feel entitled to healthcare or pension or affordable housing like most people I've met feel entitled to have some sort of an opinion about politics and that opinion might just be like oh like screw all those screw all that noise like I don't participate because it doesn't matter But, like, it's your – it's offered to you, and you can, like, reject it or do with it as you please. And I think that's actually, frankly, like, our best opportunity for building a mass politics that's different is that people do feel entitled to some sort of opinion about it. And that's, like, just the messy work of pulling people together.
8: Yeah, but uh, here's my take on it. Sure. Every once in a while – there's a struggle, struggles that break out in this country, and we mm-hmm. went through. Fred and I went through uh, some big ones yep. in, back in the day. When the question isn't uh, it not well, if you want to support the civil rights movement in Mississippi, that's fine. It's your opinion or oppose it mm-hmm. or whatever. That uh, that the leadership organizations or the conscious mm-hmm. most conscious people uh, are organizers. They want to get mm-hmm. get people involved, right. or or and uh, solidarity is one of the the points you know and uh so the thing that struck me was uh you had the mainstream democrats mm-hmm. late but coming into that thing i mean mm-hmm. that was really uh you can't deny that uh you know they sent down money and support and mm-hmm. speakers and i think uh, barack obama gave a uh, did a uh, uh broadcast or something you know uh, uh robo calls and things like that to get out the vote and uh uh but, and so, when you had uh, the biggest organized left groups uh abstaining you know it, it seemed to me like it wasn't a matter of uh, we all have our freedom to decide whatever we want about who to vote for or not mm-hmm. vote for that this was this was a uh a struggle that. Everybody who called themselves left or progressive should have been expressing solidarity with or supporting, don't you think? I
9: think I might disagree with the comparison okay. that the election of Doug Jones was comparable to uh, the civil rights movement. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's good that Doug Jones won. Like, it's great. Um, I don't think that it was like obviously, you know, like a civil rights civil rights movement kind of watershed. You know, I think that elections, frankly, they do have kind of a boom and bust cycle. Um, And so the real work is not just finding the right candidates and descending on a place for like a couple weeks and spending a lot of money there. But it's like, what's the actual work that needs to be done, not just in Alabama, but in Chicago and in Illinois to like build durable political will for lasting change?
7: It's often hard to tell, I think, though, uh, in the moment. What becomes the a watershed, or a, a, you, know, you know, what whether it's the moment or not? What was interesting to mm. me about about Tuesday in Alabama? What was several things? Uh, uh, certainly, the, the the black population of Alabama saw it as at a moment that that they had to mo- that they had to mobilize for. I mean, you had uh, the Democrat Joe Trippi may want to take. Take credit, and and uh, and uh, what's his name, uh, Tom Perez, the head of the DNC, may want to take credit for the win. But black students at it, at the historically black universities and and uh, and elsewhere uh, mobilized throughout the, the South. You know, I was in I was in my, I was in Memphis last year. It was the beginning of the of the honoring of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, and uh, 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 there was this huge march down down the main streets of of Memphis. That was organized by students at our, at uh, at Auburn and from uh, and from Alabama A and M, and they had come all the way to Memphis to to march. And students who, uh, throughout the South, black students particularly, or throughout the South, uh, saw the election in uh, in in Alabama on Tuesday as a as as, as a moment. Uh, certainly, black churches saw the the that this is a moment. Uh, NAACP, which is is actually fairly well organized in Alabama. Saw it as a as a moment. So not just as an election for Doug Jones, no, but for a yeah, no, no. They saw I, I, in all the in all the conversations that I've read and heard and taken part in is that black folks in Alabama saw this as a as a historical continuation of. Of the of the of the of which the goes movement. back to what you were reading from uh, Julius Lester earlier. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I think there's that. So I think there's there's that, and and uh, and um, so it's like I say, it's it's hard in some, oftentimes in the moment, especially if you're not there. To know whether to see whether this is the moment or not, but it didn't. But I think should, what should have been clear to everybody was that it was not the moment to say nothing or to have no opinion. Or as some in that in that in that response uh, that you that you referred to in on on the internet for this one guy from the DSA who said we have no interest, we have no interest in this race. Mm-hmm. Uh, ele- we know elections don't don't solve every problem but but this election was more than than just people voicing their views in the, at in the voting booth it was a rejection of a party of pedophiles and misogynists and racists uh, 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 that had national in a way in and the and the way it could be done at that moment was by getting people to go vote <laughs>
0: Lump Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.